The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 till 11. On the line, Davina Montgomery to talk about the issues of the day. Davina, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Mitch. How are you? Good. Thank you for being on the program. I suppose, first of all, it's worth looking at the COVID situation. Uh, There is a bit of freedom in New South Wales today and people are looking at that here in Victoria. Some people are hoping that will be the same here in Victoria in maybe a couple of weeks' time. Perhaps the 26th of October is when we're projected to hit 70% doubly vaccinated. Yeah, it's it's a weird feeling, isn't it, Mitch? It's a bit like, um, you know, it's a bit like the neighbours have got a new pool, but we don't have one. So <laughs> we're all looking over the fence going, oh, life looks good over there. Um, and look, I, I'm I'm very pleased for the people of New South Wales. They've, they've had it tough in the last few months as well, as we know. So I, I'm trying to look at it as I'm really hopeful that that's where we get to soon that we're just a little bit behind that curve, but it is sometimes a little bit hard when you sit and go, why is it always us? Mm. We have done it very tough, and the cases today, even though they're down since yesterday, they're considerably higher, about 1,200 more than in New South Wales. I don't know what's going on, whether it's the higher vaccination rate in New South Wales, even though it might only be, what, 7% more people up there are doubly vaxxed as opposed to down here. But it does seem like here in this pandemic, we have copped it like no other state, particularly with Melbourne being the most locked down city in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's definitely indisputable, Mitch. We really have had to had to try and fight our way through it. But um, I think what we're seeing is really that that tipping of the curve. So, if you remember when Sydney went into lockdown, but we weren't, uh, we were that few weeks behind. And it's really only been in the last sort of week to ten days that the Sydney numbers have, st- have dropped. But they've dropped quite consistently and quite dramatically as they've gone down. So we, you know, they were in those high thousands and then, you know, sort of 1,800, 1,800 or so, and then coming down into the lows. And now we're looking at, you know, that sort of five and even into 400 cases a day. So, you know, that happened quite quickly. So I'm really hopeful that that is going to happen here as well. I hope that it's just that we're behind that curve a little bit. Um, and in effect, we've taken quite similar responses. So we've had the same, there's very similar lockdowns and restrictions on movement here that what they did in Sydney. Um, of course, we all remember that there was that big push of vaccination into Sydney, into particularly those areas that were in big trouble at the time. So into that western and southern parts of Sydney where they were having very large localised outbreaks. And we're doing the same here in, in Victoria and in Melbourne particularly now. So we're seeing those those really strong vaccination pushes into the north and the west of, of Melbourne, into those suburbs there. Um, regionally, we've got some fantastic vaccination numbers. So hopefully we're only a little bit away, but I tell you what, it's like anything else. You push and push and push and then that last little bit feels like it takes forever and that's the hard bit. And I'm really hoping that that's what we're in right now. And I fired up the Service Victoria app this morning and it seems that the update has come through that they were talking about at the media conference yesterday, which is that you can now connect your Service Victoria app to MyGov and get your vaccination certificate on the app so that when you check in, uh, it will come up and say that you are fully vaccinated, which will then confirm to the venue people that yes, you've checked in and also that you're vaccinated. And from what I can see, it seems to be working well because I've run it this morning and it was okay and uh, seems yeah, to be a reasonably foolproof process. I did the same, Mitch. Yeah, look, there are, you know, there were some, um, there are some potential hurdles for, for people, but there is a, 
there is a sort of show me how option when you open onto the updated um, services VCAP. You know, it's those usual things with things like technology updates. Um, sometimes you can update the app and it does what it's supposed to do. Sometimes it doesn't. So if you're finding, if anyone out there is finding that they're having any issues with the, um, the Service Victoria app, then would highly recommend deleting the app and re-downloading it. Open up again and then you need, and then work through the process. And if you've got the Medicare app on your phone, the Medicare Express app on your phone, that certainly helps as well. Um, you need to be able to log into MyGov. So you need to have that login for MyGov to be able to get that digital certificate and then it will connect up that way. So, um, once, if you've got all those things in place, then absolutely it's, it's a nice, easy process. If you don't, you know, you have to go through a little bit of rigmarole of signing in and registering and things like that with, um, MyGov or with Medicare and getting those apps on your phone. But once you do, yeah, it's, it seems pretty, pretty straightforward. I guess it's like anything else, Mitch. We all just have to remember to, to keep our updates rolling on our phone so that it keeps working. But so far, so good. And if it does work that way, and if it is as simple as putting the QR code in and it comes up with a tick, then that will hopefully alleviate some of those concerns. I think that people have of the big venues and how are they really going to check and, what about people who just say, "Oh, I've got a, I've got an exemption." Um, I suspect that there isn't going to be any any wriggle room for people who say they've got an exemption unless you've actually got a certificate to say it. And there's not going to be many people that do. So, as we know, there's really only those three very, you know, very very rare reasons why you would have an exemption. So, um, so far, so good. And if it means that we can just QR code and wander in and go to the cricket or the footy or the races or a theatre show. Then doesn't that sound nice? Certainly does. But yeah, I think the MyGov issue is a problem because I know a lot of people out there find it very difficult to use. They can't remember their username, their password. It locks them out after trying different passwords. Um, I know people have had trouble linking their Medicare to their MyGov. And I was talking to someone just last week that was trying all the different combinations, couldn't link the services. And I said, you've probably got no choice uh, but to ring them up. And I had to, in fact, even call them up to link it. And it took two hours of sitting on hold. So, a bit of a rigmarole getting through that MyGov site, unfortunately. And, yeah, people that are listening are probably just going to have to be a bit patient and, I don't know, try their best. Yeah, it can be. It can be a really frustrating process. Um, but I, it does definitely work while it works. And I know uh, mine particularly, and this is, I've got a bit of an issue that I need to work through, but I haven't had time to do it yet. But I've got one of my kids on my Medicare app, but not my other child. And I don't really, and for some reason... I've got one child on mine and my husband's got one child on his, but that's not super helpful if we're, mm-hmm. if we're going somewhere and we need to bring up their certificates. So um, we'll need to sort that out between them getting their second dose, which will hopefully be not too far away. Now, I just wonder what you make of the campaign for Karangamai, just around the swimming pool situation at Drysdale. It would appear that yeah. yet another marginal seat federal campaign is going to be fought on a swimming pool. Yeah, don't we love an indoor pool? You know, fair enough too. It gets pretty cold. Anyone who clocked the weather out here this morning, it might look sunny, but geez, the air's cold. Um, Look, it's that perennial issue, isn't it, Mitch? I feel like it's been, we've had pool conversations for the past 20, 25 years that there's been political argy-bargies over pools. Um, Probably a lot to do with not just the cost of building them, but also the very, very large cost of running them. But yes, I think that being in a marginal seat might just be a win for the people of the Ballerine Peninsula because I suspect you're going to get your pool.
Mm, one way or the other, whether it's inside or outside or, yeah, because there's a bit of, I can see, there's a bit of argy-bargy today about the whole, the, the way that the Labour Party has responded in terms of saying we want it to be a, an, a, an indoor pool, but the government is saying, well, we're going to be starting construction regardless before the next election on the outdoor pool. So if yeah. you're going to change it, you're going to have to somehow go back on that. Yeah, look, it's, uh, I do question the logic of an outdoor pool. Um, in our area, and I can say this as someone who knows a little bit something about it, Mitch, because I grew up in Clifton Springs for, for my sort of primary school and high school years, but down in Clifton Springs. And for anyone who had the joyous experience of being down there and doing swimming lessons, um, why they were always done in that third term of the year, I don't know, but they did seem to be. And this, the old Clifton Springs swimming pool was on top of the cliff. You could actually see over the bay, which is a lovely outlook, but it's a really, really cold place to go and have your swimming lessons when you're a kid. So um, I think we've been in a lot warmer than what we came out and trying to get changed in those open change rooms it was a pretty hideous experience as well. So I do wonder about the logic of we're not Queensland. We don't have that kind of climate. We have such a limited time of the year when an outdoor pool actually makes sense. Um, and heating outdoor pools is significant. Is a really expensive exercise as well. I mean, you, you need some, you need a really big solar array and, and a very large heating system to heat that volume of water to a temperature that would actually make it comfortable to be in. So, I'm not buying the logic of it being an outdoor pool, but as we know, for some reason, pools are very political, um, mm. and not always a whole lot of good sense comes into it. But I don't know if I had, you know, if it was my kids in those sort of preschool, early primary school years going down to swimming lessons, do we really want them in outdoor pools? Does that make a lot of sense down here? I'm not too sure. And the other point is I don't think you see the comparison side by side because of the way it's so political and everyone's going, you know, really full on about it. You don't see that just fair, balanced, transparent comparison of this is what it would cost to build if it was indoor, this is what it would cost if it was outdoor, and these are the running costs. So we probably will never really know how much more it might cost to just put a dome over it and make it indoor or even what the difference might be. Because I know to heat an outdoor pool, if you think about it, all that heat goes up to the atmosphere if it's outdoor. Outdoors, whereas I suppose it's indoor is protected. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know absolutely. what the comparison is in terms of the cost. You know, which, and it's a funny one, isn't it? Because councils are, are very, very good at doing things like whole of life reporting. Um, they do it in all sorts of areas of, of, their, of their capital spend. That happens continually. Every budget cycle, there's a whole lot of analysis that goes into it. Every big expense has, you know, or most of your big expenses has a whole of life. Um, cost to it. So when I'm saying whole of life, you, you think about those huge big graders that go running around on the roads. Uh, what are they? Half a million dollars thereabouts. Um, to buy one of those graders. But when a council is buying that grader, they don't just buy the grader. They actually cost out the entire cost of running that grader for the whole of that vehicle's life. So what its maintenance costs are, what its, you know, registration costs, what it costs to run it, what they have a budget for to be able to fix it. Um, all of those things get rolled into that thing. And, and councils, as we know, they already run pools. We've got a number of them across the region. So we know that councils do have the full amount of what that whole of life of that of that facility is um, and whether they incorporate that into, you know, into something like the in the city of Greater Geelong, for instance, we've got the, the three, four big pools, three big pools. Um, 
that, you know, they've got sort of gyms and cafes and things in them or some of them have got a cafe in them. So they've got money that comes back in. So they're income producers as well as being an expense and then they work on a budget for that. They've already got it them staffed. They know what that costs as well. So it's not like this sort of information isn't out there. I'm very surprised, like you mentioned, that there isn't just, you know what, just put the numbers together, put the case up and then figure out who's going to fund it. Now, uh, moving along, since we last spoke to you, of course, in New South Wales, there's been quite a shift in the state political landscape with quite a few key people resigning. But, of course, the most prominent one was their former premier in Gladys Berejiklian. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on the way that they deal with corruption up there as opposed to in, for example, a federal jurisdiction or the state jurisdiction, because this is not the first New South Wales Liberal premier to resign. No, sir. Am I right in thinking third? Third, yep. So uh, Nick Griner, yeah, I believe, right. set up ICAC and then had to resign because of it. And, and then, of course, Barry O'Farrell with the wine and now this. Yes, the bottle of Grange. Yeah, look, it is. It's, um, it, it's look, it's extraordinary is what it is, Mitch, especially when you think about the timing. And I mean, we, we saw the, uh, I guess, the the intense disappointment and a reasonable, you know, a very, very large amount of frustration on Gladys Berejiklian's face when she came up to that press conference to make that announcement. Um, the language was, I think, was barely contained. I mean, and, and something that I think Gladys really did well right across her political career, even before she was a premier, was that she used very good common language. She just spoke. She wasn't really coming up with the slogans and the three-worders and things like that that we seem to hear so much of in politics. She really did just talk about things. And... She was, um, yeah, she was pretty pissy that the, that ICAC had chosen that moment when they were just on that verge of being able to come out of COVID and that last push that kind of we're in at the moment here in Victoria. Um, and that was the moment when that, that announcement was made. But of course, this all dates back to things that were, you know, from several years before, um, an unfortunate choice in her private life, which I'm sure she deeply regrets in many ways now. But, uh, what I always liked about the political, the, the way that the state system ran under ICAC in New South Wales, and yes, it has claimed um, some premiers for, you know, maybe there's some question marks over whether that was actually necessary. But what I always liked about it was that it got the politicians into the point where they said, you know what, if we're under a cloud of suspicion, we should actually stand down. And that's what happened with Gladys Berejiklian. She was very vocal about that previously are saying that, you know, it, she really believes that if you are in that high state, in that high position in a state or, you know, and it would exacerbate out into a federal government if we had a federal um, anti-corruption commission, which of course we should, but we don't, um, then someone under that cloud should be standing down. Should they be leaving politics at that point? I'm not sure, but in the circumstances, I think it was, um, I think it was a very honourable choice to actually say, you know what, we've got bigger problems right now than having the politics focused on me and what's happened in, you know, in my life and what this case might be between before the, before the, um, before the IVAC. So I'll stand down and clear the air for the government. I, that was a really noble thing to do. And, you know, regardless of which side of politics you're on, regardless of what you might think personally about someone like a, a Gladys Berejiklian or a Dan Andrews and the people in these positions, um, the work that they've done, the dedication that they've put into trying to save as many lives in Australia as they can and in their state as they can has been nothing short of heroic because both of those two premiers particularly have saved countless thousands of lives with the way that they responded to this pandemic and I think we all owe them a debt of gratitude for that.
the timing, of course, is interesting when you look at the New South Wales curve when it's been you know plotted mm. and the number of new cases that they've had each day it's sort of peaked and is well and truly coming down now it would seem if you plot it on a graph yeah. so it sort of has been there doing the job of premier during the tough slog where you may be quite unpopular because people don't like being restricted and now it seems like dominic perrottet gets to come in and sort of have a good start off because people are happy that they're reopening it is a nice place to be i mean of course with the reopening um numbers will rise that's that's inevitable there is no version of of new south wales opening up where the numbers don't rise and we'll see that in victoria as well and we're just hoping that the curve goes down a bit before it goes up a bit so we will see how that goes um the the great thing for us in australia is that we've got those examples of overseas so we're sitting what two three weeks behind three weeks i think behind new south wales um but really in a lot of ways we're sitting that sort of five six months behind many of the other countries and certainly because we were that far behind in our um, vaccination rollout which is such a disappointing outcome of all this mm. is that australia got ahead of the curve in so many ways we all put in the hard yards in lockdown and, and no more so than in melbourne and victoria um did the hard yards of, of keeping this virus contained and saving lives by doing that and then to kind of waste that that advantage in waiting for this this slow vaccination rollout was a bit of a shame because we could have been five or six months ahead of this we could have been coming into this into this time where we had a mass rollout and we were starting to look at booster doses for people who are particularly immunocompromised um so that's a bit of that's a bit of a disappointment People sending their kids back to school feeling a bit nervous about that, of course, because, you know, a lot of the um, the over-12s will still be waiting for their second dose and anyone who's under 12 will be completely unvaccinated. So that's that's a nervy time for people as well. Um, so the, the numbers will rise, but really the, we, what we care about now is hospitalisations, about serious illness, about um, people in ICU and unfortunately how many people will succumb to this virus but fingers crossed we can manage it we can get the vaccination up to that 90 percent plus which i really think we will because the, the 12 to 15 year old response to vaccination has been outstanding um, both my kids are in that age group they've both had their first dose going in for their second and we've had great responses from people um you know their schools saying that what a huge take up of the vaccine it has had so that's been terrific Yes, well, that's exactly right. And I think if you look at the vaccination rates, even, for example, here in Geelong, yes, there's some concerns out in the north, but overall, to have over 90% of the population singly vaxxed, it shows perhaps that at times some people put too much emphasis on those that don't want to get vaccinated, which is their right, but really the vast majority of people are more than happy to line up and go through that process. Yeah, you're right, Mitch. You know, most of the time we don't really know who the silent majority is. We know they're out there, but we don't really know who they are or how big a majority it is. But this is actually one time when we do. We will know how big the silent majority is, and I think it's pretty big. So if we can get vaccinations as a total population, I don't mean just those who are eligible for a vaccination, um, but if we have vaccination of the total population of, you know, getting up over that 90%, so really probably only excluding those very, very, you know, the under five um, age group, then we're going to be in a really good place to be able to manage this virus going forward. And then it will just become a case of getting on top of the, the mutations, um, you know, really having a look at what happens overseas and, and what new strains might come and being prepared to deal with that. And then hopefully this becomes just another part of our vaccination schedule. You go and have your vaccine and you move on with your life. And well, yes, there'll be people who will become very sick. And yes, there will be people who will, who will die uh, from this virus. 
Um, we do have that with a number of other viruses and that's something that we just unfortunately have to live with. But it would be really nice to think that um, that will become less and less. And as we get new treatments, new uh, new ways of preventing this, so there are a lot of preventives, preventative medications and treatments now underway for COVID and for other um, other cold viruses, then the idea that you could use a preventer in the way that you would use a puffer for asthma, as well as having that vaccination to give you a baseline of, of um, defence, doesn't that feel nice? Wouldn't that mm. feel nice to be able to just go, you know what, I'm actually pretty confident I can just go about my life and do my thing and um, be able to make some plans. Actually, to that point, what do you think it's going to be like when we reopen? Do you think people will be out there just doing their thing or will there be some reticence about things like large crowds? I personally think that once you've been doubly vaxxed and unless there's technologies like you described there, there's not really a great deal more that you can do. No, I think, look, I think it'll be slow in the beginning, Mitch. Um, and I think that's what we've seen overseas. So we've seen good examples of, um, particularly in the US and Israel, Singapore, you know, some uh, Canada is a nice comparable population to us as well and Ireland, that when things opened up, it was quite slow. The UK was probably the outlier. They jumped really quickly. Um, we heard that language from Boris Johnson as well as this was Freedom Day and out they went and it was like having having their own version of V-Day again, I think. Um, but, and, and then paid the price for it, of course, with a huge sweep of, of virus that ran rampant through the population and had to go back into lockdown in some places as well. But, um, and certainly had swamped swamped hospitals but in most other places there has been some measures still in place so mask wearing uh, a little bit of social distance certainly check in and that contact tracing so that's been a really um we did see that it was a slow burn in the beginning um not not unreasonably slow so people were out and about but there was that level of caution for a while and then it built up to the point where you know you're starting to see some pretty serious crowds in places and even i think um in denmark now they've reduced their restrictions to virtually nothing now, I think, as well. So uh, apart from some contact tracing and maybe some masks indoors, they might be doing masks indoors. But, yeah, so we're getting to that point where when you get to these really high levels of vaccination, that there is a real sense of people being able to go, okay, well, now I'm, now I'm okay to, to live with it. Well, I saw this photo of, um, I think it was in Texas in the States and it looked like it was some sort of football match over there. Might have even just been college football, but the amount of people that descended onto the field, I mean, the crowd was unbelievable, probably even more than before COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Not a mask in sight. No, uh, that's that's a funny one, that southern part of America. America's almost like a split. You know, it's almost a bit like Europe at the moment. It's got some big divisions and, that you know, the East Coast states have responded in a way that was very, uh, very, very different in those northern east and northern west coast states. So California um, is a big one, of course, where they've had a pr- pretty sensible response to the virus and being quite cautious in a number of ways. But then when you, the further south that you get, you know, we all know about the that sort of that red wave that can run down down south and that was certainly where a lot of the um the vaccine hesitancy has been that's where we see those really sad stories of people who didn't believe in the virus and then are telling people from you know right before they get intubated and put on a life support system that you know that they really wish that they had had the virus or begging people for the virus or abusing medical staff saying that this isn't all real and they've caused this um that's a bit of a worry so 
if that's a whole lot of, you know, double vaccinated people that are running out there in an open space, they're probably still a bit tightly packed. It feels a bit for us, doesn't it? But, you know, if that's the case, then, you know, maybe that the risk is actually quite low, especially if people are using those rapid antigen testing. I don't think that was happening in the case in Texas, though. I think that was just a whole lot of people running on the field and, you know, it's all going to be, everything's going to be fine. We're all good. Um, and it is, everything is fine and it is all good right up until the point where you are an unvaccinated person with COVID in an ICU ward and then things are very not good. That's exactly right. Now, um, just last of all, I think we didn't talk to you two weeks ago because you just decided to take off. I think it was the day we came out of restrictions and you just went, that's it. Uh, I'm sick of being in this 10K radius and uh, talk. I'm just wondering, did you meet many other people, families in particular, because it was school holidays on your travels and what was the mood like out there? Yeah, we um, we went sort of down to Peterborough, so the other side of Port Campbell um, on the way down to Warrnambool. It was a funny time, actually. I mean, Peterborough is a very small place, so it was really quiet. It certainly wasn't fully booked out or even close to it because, um, of course, Melbourne was still in restrictions and, and Victoria had only just come out of restrictions and we'd actually booked this, this holiday back when the last, before the previous lockdown, um, when we were all allowed and we just sort of went, oh, well, we'll see how we go. And as it turned out, yes, we were lucky enough to go, which I wasn't expecting. But um, it is a pretty isolated little part of the coast. You know, it was really, it was interesting, Mitch, you know, going down to places like the Bay of Islands, um, you know, the arch along the Great Ocean Road, things that are really, like, really heavy Instagram popular places. And we, at many of these places, we're the only car in the car park or there would be, you know, maybe two other families there um, taking, you know, having a look and just standing there and taking the view on your own. It was really, really unusual because you just don't get that down the Great Ocean Road in September in the holidays. Um, it's almost, you know, it, it is unheard of. So that was really interesting. We did manage to get out and eat at a few places. Um, it was great to see that the, the COVID safety regulations were being really, really well adhered to. People were keeping a really lot of distance. So we did bump into a couple of other families that we had a chat to um, at certain things and they were a bit like us. They were really relieved to be there, but at the same time, extra relieved that we weren't surrounded by lots and lots of other people. It still felt really quite safe and um, we weren't cramped in with a whole lot of other people. So that was nice as well. So I think there is still that level of caution. People are like, it's lovely to get away, but I don't necessarily want to get away with, you know, 5,000 of my closest friends right now. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being on the program. Really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again in two weeks' time. Great to speak to you, Mitch. Um, for anyone who's listening in Melbourne, hold tight. For anyone who lives in Melbourne and is working down here and might be listening, hold tight. You're not far away. I hope and not power of work. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you very much. And yes, we do have people that tune in from Metro Melbourne because, of course, Werribee just up the road is in Metro Melbourne and uh, at one point even parts of Little River were in Metro Melbourne, but I think they've been released from this uh, round of restrictions. But I know we do have people listening in Werribee and even the west side of Melbourne, St Albans, all those sorts of locations. So we're very sympathetic. Uh, It's been tough enough down here with the restrictions, so I can't imagine what it's been like to be 253 days in lockdown. Where's Jay's the host to 45 RPM, which comes onto the pulse after 11 o'clock every Monday. He's with me now. It's good to see you, Wes. How are you? Good. And of course, uh, those areas that you were mentioning are part of our licensed area plan. 
and uh, which means um, we are the service Lara and Werribee and, and you know, all the all I know the Werribee is, but is uh, St Albans and those sort of inner west parts? It probably goes down to Hoppers Crossing. I see. So there'll be plenty of people probably tuned in now that are in uh, restrictions and I know that there are parts that maybe aren't part of our licence area plan but we still hear from people living in those areas that are listing online or whatever. Well, we've got some great tunes coming your way today, I tell you. We've got some J.O.K., The Loved Ones, Tony Worsley. Uh, that's for those who love the 60s. Billy Thorpe, J.P.Y., Richard Clapton from the 70s, Ian Moss, The Oils, Icehouse, The Lovers of the 80s. And we're going to finish on just an absolute 11-minute classic. That's <laughs> a great show coming your way. Fantastic. And the number to call if people would like to make a request? Zero. Oh, let's go. one one 800 RPM. It's the free call number, 1-800-0-45-RPM. Well, thanks very much. Appreciate it very much. Uh, Wes J there, the host of 45RPM. We'll take a break, and after that, we'll be talking uh, all things sport, looking at the Collingwood Football Club today. The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 to 11. Or search for Mitchell's Front Page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or wherever you get your podcasts.